Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg, and I'm a children's book author. And I'm Eve Yohallam. I'm also a children's book author. In each episode of this podcast, we use books as a way to explore topics that fascinate us. And in this episode, we consider cookbooks. I remember the first time I realized that a cookbook could be more than just a collection of recipes. If I close my eyes, I can go right back to my first apartment out of college, lying on the couch for, you know, basically a whole weekend, devouring How to Cook a Wolf by MFK Fisher. I've loved reading cookbooks ever since then, and I've long wanted us to do a cookbook episode on book dreams. It's hard to believe that I, too, have wanted a cookbook episode since my idea of cooking is pouring milk over a bowl of cereal, but I have. (laughs) I believe you. (laughs) It's true. Ever since, in episode 32, Brian Washington told us that reading cookbooks helped him become a writer. I have been fascinated by their potential power. It took us a while, though, to find just the right guest, but we kept looking, and we were so excited when Bryant Terry said he would talk to us on the podcast. Brian is the author of six cookbooks, but he does much more than that. He's a James Beard and NAACP Image Award-winning chef, educator, and author, renowned for his activism to create a healthy, just, and sustainable food system. He's the founder and editor-in-chief of Four Color Books, a new imprint of Penguin Random House and 10 Speed Press. Since 2015, Bryant has been the chef in residence at the Museum of the African Diaspora in San Francisco, where he creates public programming at the intersection of food, farming, health, activism, art, and culture. San Francisco Magazine included Bryant among the 11 smartest people in the Bay Area food scene, and Fast Company named him one of nine people who are changing the future of food. Bryant's mentor, Alice Waters, says... Bryant Terry knows that good food should be an everyday right and not a privilege. Bryant's most recent book, Black Food, was the first book to be published by his new imprint and the most critically acclaimed American cookbook published in 2021. It landed on the best of lists of The New Yorker, Boston Globe, The Washington Post, NPR, Los Angeles Times, Glamour, and many other publications. Black Food is an amazing book. Bryant assembled more than 100 contributors and put the whole thing together in an astonishing nine months during a pandemic. I'll read you a little of the book's description so you can begin to get a sense of its scope. In this stunning and deeply heartfelt tribute to Black culinary ingenuity, Bryant Terry captures the broad and divergent voices of the African diaspora through the prism of food. The book moves through chapters exploring parts of the Black experience, from homeland to migration, spirituality to Black future, offering delicious recipes, moving essays, and arresting artwork. 
I have to say, this is where the podcast format really falls short because I wish we could just hold up the book and let everybody see it for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Everything about this book is visually striking from the cover to the end pages, to the way the food is photographed, to the graphics, to the way the writing and visual art are integrated. Okay. But enough description. <laughs> Let's get to the interview. <laughs> right. We started by asking Bryant about the inspiration for black food. Here's what he said. I always say that the, the kind of spiritual godmother of black food is Toni Morrison, because one of the guiding questions that I had was this question that Toni Morrison posed, you know, what would the life of Black people look like without white supremacy, without the albatross of racism um, hanging around our necks? And when I approached the more than 100 contributors or potential contributors to Black food, that is exactly what I said to them. You know, what does our lives look like without racism? You know, what's our agency, our brilliance, our magic? And that was the energy that I wanted people to bring to the book. And um, everyone delivered. And I just want to say this. We were so lucky, dare I say blessed, to have Portia Burke, a longtime editor at Penguin Random House, who was uh, Maya Angelou's editor. She kind of ushered in the republication of uh, Malcolm X's autobiography of Malcolm X. And she had worked with Toni Morrison. So just to have her put her hands on this book and edit it, it meant so much and kind of closed the circle. It feels like cookbook isn't a big enough word here since Black food has you know, at least as many essays and poems and visual art images as recipes. You even have a musical playlist. So how would you define the book? I think cookbook is a fair title because recipes are through line and, you know, people know me for my body of work, which is largely um, cookbooks. But here's the thing. I have to remind people that what I do in Black food, I've done throughout my body of work, you know, offering the suggested soundtracks and, you know, documentary films and um, books, really giving people this holistic experience when they come to um, the work. And so um, it was great to have uh, a lot of money to do it really big with Black food. (laughs) (laughs) You know, just powerful to bring in these different voices and give them the space to tell their most authentic story about their connection with food and, you know, connecting with all these brilliant visual artists to have these visual art pieces that open up each chapter that really encapsulate the energy and content within. And I think every book that I've written up until Black Food prepared me to just do this book really well. And I like to think it's um, the crown jewel of my body of work. And it's my last book because I'm retiring from writing books after this. Oh my goodness. Really? Why? (laughs) You know, (laughs) I've always said that um, I want to go out on top, if you will. And um, I think the fact that Black Food was the most uh, critically acclaimed cookbook to be published in North America in uh, 2021, I I, I like to think that that's kind of an apex. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. (laughs) But just to be clear, not retiring from food-related stuff, just from writing about yeah, just, or- just, you know, me creating books that have my name on them. Mm-hmm. As you both know, I now have a publishing imprint, Four Color Books, which is a um, imprint of 10 Speed Press and Penguin Random House. And I, I'm really excited about learning how to be a good publisher. I, I'm so excited about being able to give voice to a younger generation of writers and help to mentor and, you know, coach them in addition to being their publisher, because I've done this rodeo so many times. So uh, this is a fun and scary moment for me, but I'm diving in headfirst. 
Well, that's so exciting. And I mean, Black Black Food is just a gorgeous and fascinating book. So it certainly is a high note to go out on. You mentioned Toni Morrison a minute or two ago. And Toni Morrison's Black Book, I have to say, was the first thing I thought of when I started paging through Black Food. Can you tell us about how that book informed yours? Sure. That book is just kind of the template in many ways for this book. Um, when I was in college, I was in the library and Toni Morrison's Black Book just kind of like appeared. And I just thought it was so brilliant the way in which she has this history of Black life, you know, I think starting in like the 17th century up until the mid 20th century, and the way in which she used so many different ways to tell these stories from archival photos to song lyrics to essays to ephemera. I really saw that as a powerful model for how. Um, I could uh, structure this book and really giving people opportunity to kind of enter wherever it made most sense for them. There are more than 100 contributors to Black Food, and we are really curious about how you gathered them together. How did you decide? (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm laughing because... Thank God I can't recall the pain, the the stress, the, <laughs> the, the many sleepless nights where I was, you know, contacting these contributors throughout the globe. I'll tell you, one of the first things that we did when we got word that uh, we got the deal for this book was put together what I call a kitchen cabinet. And I tapped three of my brilliant colleagues. Scott Alvis Barton, who's a chef and professor at NYU um, Food Studies Program, Dr. Scott Alvis Barton, uh, Therese Nelson, who is a New Jersey-based chef and storyteller, and Dara Cooper, who is a food justice activist and the former uh, executive director of the um, National Food Justice Alliance. And I knew that I had to have this kind of brain trust, if you will, to help me uh, make sure that I was getting everything right. Because I, you know, just from the decades, two decades of doing this work, I had kind of been mentally structuring this book and thinking about, you know, who could go where and who might make Mm. sense to be inside of it. In fact, many of the chapters in Black Food are literally pulled directly from programming that we did at the Museum of the African Diaspora. The Black Women Food and Power chapter, the Land Liberation Food Justice chapter, the Black Queer Food chapter. These were programs that we had in real life. And so I had a good sense of many of the contributors and ideas about structuring it, but I knew there were things that I you know, didn't know and people that I knew about but didn't necessarily have a connection to. And this kitchen cabinet that I put together were invaluable for really ensuring that this book could be, um, as I write in the in the um, the acknowledgments, the most brilliant blackity black book that it could uh, possibly be. <laughs> yeah, I can't I can't believe you produced a book like or any book, let alone a book like this in nine months with a yeah. hundred contributors. I mean, that, wow. that's crazy. <laughs> that's just crazy. Was there anything that you found surprising in any of the recipes or other contributions or anything you, you think that maybe other people might find surprising? I, I think one of the things that did surprise me was just the ability of people to really step up and just bring their A game to this project because this was a challenging period. You know, this was yeah. a period in which people were dealing with a lot, you know, yeah. mental health crises. Uh, people had family members who were dying. And I think people were so excited about the vision of this book and understood its importance that um, even in the midst of all those things, people, um, you know, got their 
essays in on time and, and really just brought a level of care and, and love to this book that I don't know, I just didn't expect, but it was it was deep and strong. And um, that was one of the things that kept my fire lit and helped me push through those nine months. So the ability of food to connect people to their ancestors is a big theme in the book. You know, both distant ancestors from before the African diaspora and more immediate ancestors. Many of the contributors talked about their grandparents, and I was struck by how many of the recipes came from grandmothers. You've talked about how your grandfather had a big influence on you when it comes to how you think about food. Can you tell us a little about that? Yeah, um, I, I'd say in terms of my connection to agriculture and just the agrarian knowledge that I, I hold, it came from my paternal grandfather, um, Andrew Johnson Terry. And I spent a lot of time in his garden growing up. And I often say it was more than a garden. It was literally an urban farm because every bit of available space was used to grow food. And back then, and I guess this was when satellite TV was, was a big thing. And I remember he had this huge satellite in the backyard. You know, it was like a million channels, but it was sitting in the middle of the um, area where he had all his dark leafy greens, you know, the collards, the mustards, <laughs> the turnips, the kale, the dandelions. And it was funny. I just remember having to like navigate around the satellite to, you know, harvest <laughs> yeah. uh, the greens. I, I'm not going to romanticize that period. It was work, you know. It mm -hmm. wasn't fun being out in the hot sun harvesting vegetables and shelling uh, peas and shucking corn. But my grandfather knew the importance of having me and many of my cousins be a part of, you know, contributing to the way that we ate. There was, a, was certainly a level of pride that I would feel when I would look at the spread and be like, hey, I shucked that corn today, you know? And so <laughs> um, I, I tell you, one of the things that my grandfather would often say to me that I feel is kind of consciously or unconsciously some catalyst for me doing this food justice activism over the past two decades. And he would often say, when you rely on other people to feed you, if they decide that they don't want to, then you'll starve. And he was very clear coming out of, you know, the Jim Crow South, ha having lived in this kind of repressive period and knowing the power of self-determination, knowing the power of being able to grow one's own food and, you know, can and pickle and preserve it and, and feed one's family. I could kind of cite a number of watershed moments that I would argue kind of moved me towards food justice activism. But I would say if there was one that was the foundation, it was spending the time in my grandfather's backyard, urban farm. Do you have a favorite or any favorite recipes from one of your grandparents? Uh, yeah. One of my favorite uh, meals that my grandfather would make was just his pot of greens. And I, you know, back then, I guess I, I would often be like, it seems like Black Southerners don't think that greens are edible unless they've been cooked for like four hours. <laughs> and then later I would learn from the elders that when you, when you cook your greens like that, you have to drink the pot liquor because that broth that the greens have been cooked in is where a lot of the flavor and the nutrients um, are sitting. And so that 
recipe in Afro-Vegan is, is really a wink to my grandfather. Um, you know, one of the things that they would often do, which is typical of a lot of Southern slow-cooked greens, is put a piece of like ham hock or some fat back or some type of, you know, meat to add some flavor and nutrient density. And I, I really um, was intentional about just showing how you could, you know, with with time and care, prepare um, slow-cooked greens that are vegan and have them equally meltingly tender and unctuous and flavorful and delicious. I've been making that a lot lately. And then, of course, in the spirit of my elders, I got to dip those Johnny Cakes inside that pot liquor and just slap it all up. <laughs> <laughs> all, right. all right. Now you're making us hungry. <laughs> so there are a number of vegan recipes in the book, as well as an essay by Tracy McWhorter that starts, Sis, I want you to go vegan. I want you to go 100% full on joyfully vegan. Why? Because I want you to feel what I feel. Freedom. It's such a great opening um, for the essay. And you've written five vegan cookbooks. Would you share with us why you decided to become vegan and what your vegan journey has been like? Yeah, I grew up an omnivore. And, you know, the the way that we ate was as local as our backyard garden, mostly in season, save for what we can, pickled and preserved. And we literally would harvest food from the garden right before making the meal. You know, people often point to Northern California, the Bay Area where I live is kind of like the, you know, epicenter, uh, the, the, the ground zero for this food movement that is pushing, you know, sustainability and spending in alignment with our values. And I just want people to know that these are practices that, you know, a lot of people have had historically, you know, whether it's like w white folks living in Appalachia or black folks, you know, throughout the South, like, because it made sense. I don't think my grandfather ever talked about we have our local and seasonal sustainable um, mustard greens that we're eating, but it was the ethos of our family. And so it was just, it wasn't something we thought about. But when I got to high school, just like many young people, I just wanted to kind of do what I wanted to do and be like my peers. And I was an athlete and many of the football players, we would eat a lot of meat because that was kind mm -hmm. of the thing. You got to eat a lot of meat so you can bulk up and just run over people. And so, right. <laughs> you know, um, in high school, I heard this hip hop song that really just opened my eyes to the complexity of our food system and specifically uh, the kind of violence that animals endure in our food system. This is a song called Beef by the um, seminal hip hop group Boogie Down Productions from the Bronx. Can I say the lyrics? I don't know if there's like, you have yeah, to yeah. Pay. Oh, okay. Oh, I don't know. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> so the song goes like this Beef, what a relief. When will this poisonous product cease? This is another public service announcement. You can believe it or you can doubt it. Let us begin now with the cow, the way that it gets to your plate and how. The cow doesn't grow fast enough for man, so through his greed, he creates a faster plan. He has drugs to make the cow grow quicker. Through the stress, the cow gets sicker. 21 different drugs are pumped into the cow in one big lump. And just before it dies, it cries in a slaughterhouse full of germs and flies. It gets much more graphic, so I'll stop there. Ooh, uh, right. <laughs> but I think you can imagine how 
whatever perception I had about our food system and how animals are just kind of running around, cows are running around in the field and they just lie down and go to sleep and then they end up on our plates. And, you know, I had no idea about the the violence that non-human animals endure in our food system. And um, I remember, you know, going to my dad and asking him to get me the uh, tape. First of all, before he did it, he said I had to go to the library and check out this book, The Jungle by Upton Sinclair. And, um, you know, I had to write him a one page synopsis of it because I had a tiger dad. But that's all the story. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he made you work for this. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, people often ask me about, like, well, you know, tell, can you talk about the reasons that you have like the suggested soundtracks and the books and all this? Well, when I think about the origins of my enlightenment around these issues, it was not some heady intellectual, like scholarly monograph or some lecture. It was a song. It was a novel. And those are the things that really just shifted my habits and attitudes and politics regarding food. We'd love to know more about Four Color Books, the publishing imprint that you launched last year. And Black Food is the first title. Can you tell us more about Four Color Books? What's the mission and what's coming next? Really, the mission of Four Color Books is just to continue to push for more diversity within the food system. In 2020, uh, with the kind of racial reckoning, there was, I think you all know, a revelation of a lot of racism within food media. You know, mm-hmm. we heard about some of the legacy uh, food media companies and their mistreatment of their employees of color. And it just illuminated a problem that I think a lot of creatives and authors of color had already been feeling and talking about. I mean, it was just all out in the open. And I'm always action-oriented. What can I do to help you know, address issues. And, you know, my agent and I had long wanted to have an imprint, but we saw this as something that, you know, this is my retirement thing or when I'm just saying, you know, I'm in my 60s, I'll just kind of lay back and focus on being a publisher. But I was, you know, felt like this was the moment for us to um, get this off the ground. The foundation of Four Color will be uh, cookbooks and food related books because that's my wheelhouse. But eventually, you know, we'll be publishing everything that I'm interested in, from poetry to prescriptive nonfiction, you know, uh, personal development, self-help, you know, for the first few years. We'll probably be publishing just two or three books per year. And then when we have figured all this out, we'll grow from there. And so Black Food is in many ways a template for the way in which we want to publish books. We want books that have, you know, deep and powerful content and the visuals to help, you know, tell the story in, in different ways. While I read Black Food, I put post-it notes next to recipes I wanted to try. And of course, by the time I got to the end, there were these little pieces of paper sticking out all over the place. I mean... Seriously, sweet potato leaves with eggplant and butter beans, peach cobbler with nutmeg sauce. My dad loves peach cobbler. I love peach cobbler, and I'm saving (laughs) that one for this summer. (laughs) So far, I've made okra and shrimp perlu, which was easy, delicious, and total comfort food. And I've also made the buttermilk cornbread muffins, which were lovely. I'm always excited to try new recipes, but preparing and eating these foods took on layers of meaning in the context of the book. I was mindful of the personal stories of the chefs who wrote the recipes and the traditions and countries that the foods came from. Shopping for the ingredients had me thinking about food scarcity and food justice. Mm. You're reminding me of one of the essays in the book by food historian Michael Twitty. It starts, 
We have always been a people whose history was traced in food steps, beginning with the birth of humanity. The story of African people is, in many ways, a constant search for subsistence and satisfaction. Food really can tell a whole history, in this case, the history of the African diaspora. I hope everyone listening will find this book as fascinating as we did. And I think that's it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. As always, you can reach us at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter and Instagram. You can find Bryant online at bryantterry.com and on Twitter and Instagram at bryantterry. Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eveohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Love, come listen to Book Dreams with Julie and me.